0: is what do you feel like right now if you were to define success for your life, how would you define it? Look at almost as if you're looking back on your life. What would make you proud of your life when you're 90 years old? If someone will walk up to you, non-believer, I'm giving you lots of ways to ask this question, and I'll give you a minute to write some thoughts on it. If someone will walk up to you and go, what's the meaning of life? Why are we alive? What does success really mean in life? How would you answer that question? So take a minute right now and just write some thoughts down, whatever it might be. It might be words, it might be phrases, it might be a few sentences. It doesn't have to be a lot, it doesn't have to be any more than you think of right now. And no pressure if you're like, gosh, I have no idea what to write. But I want to give you a minute right now just to write a few thoughts. What do you define success as? Okay, maybe just 30 more seconds, if you have any more thoughts you're writing down. Okay, awesome. Most of you guys done? Yeah? Most are? Okay. Finish up that sentence, whatever you're writing. and. Um, Let's jump in. I want to start by sharing a little bit of my own story, and then we're going to jump into the scriptures on this. But um, I, I haven't told a lot of my testimony in this. I mostly talked about the fire and fragrance story that kind of led up to you know, us starting this and, and being able to do this together. But um, I come from, uh, in real short, very, very brief, you know, I come from an amazing family. My parents were solid, faithful followers of Jesus Um, A lot of our life, we were pretty lukewarm, like pretty mediocre. In fact, I would say, um, especially as I got in my high school years, I got mega apathetic. And my parents were kind of coasting, kind of doing the Christian church thing Sunday mornings, but not a lot outside of that. And um, I would say most of my high school years, I was striving, really trying to earn God's love. And, of course, that's a dead-end, you know, that's a dead-end road. It always leads to kind of this cycle of striving, failure, strive harder, fail harder, strive harder, fail harder. And my high school years were kind of up and down, you know, in this kind of Christian path. It wasn't like I was running away from God, but I was very apathetic because I was so frustrated with this desire to try and earn God's love, but never feeling like I could, never measuring up, always blowing it, always making another mistake, And so people would have looked at my life from the outside and probably been like, man, he's a good kid. He's kind of got his life together, like he's not doing crazy stuff. But in the reality, on the inside, I was empty, I was dead, I had no real purpose or vision for life. I didn't have anyone in my life. I I can say this probably safely, is in my high school years, I don't think anyone in my entire life ever used the word intimacy to relate to a relationship with God. I can say in my high school years that I didn't know a single person in my life who I would say was wholehearted in their devotion to Jesus. I knew faithful people. I knew good people that went to church on Sunday. I knew people that had good ethics and good morals. But I can say in my high school years, I had never met someone who was sold out and zealous for Jesus. I didn't know anyone like that. And, uh, and so I had no grid. There was no, and this is like, this is dating me guys, but it wasn't like YouTube existed and you were watching videos about some epic person out there who was teaching and really loved Jesus. YouTube didn't exist yet. Uh, so we, I was limited to the relationships around me and I lived in a small town in Alaska. And so I, my little world didn't have anyone that was causing this like hunger for more inside of me. So when I went to DTS, I went for all the wrong reasons. I was ready to get out of Alaska, my graduate yes, to YWAM and I'm gonna find a wife. That was my graduation speech, which was ridiculous because I was so afraid of women. It was just like, I I didn't have any sisters. This was a, a peculiar species to me. I did not understand. And, and so it was this vibrato, it was ego, it was insecurity, it was fear, it was all those things that were a big part of my life. There was no reality in that statement, although I did find my wife in DTS. But that's, that's the mercy of God. That was not anything but mercy. And, uh, and so that was my going to YWAM was like, I want to get out of Alaska. Traveling sounds great, but I, I, I didn't really come because I was like, oh, I really want to grow my relationship with God. I didn't really think I'd be a missionary someday. I just thought this sounds fun. My dad was, is highly educated, and he's, he's, uh, he was really pushing me to go, where are you going to go to university? I was like, I have no idea what I would even study. So he's like, well, go take a gap year and figure it out. So YWAM was like the perfect fit. I get to DTS, and I hate it the first week, I hated it. People were so vulnerable, it was so awkward, like guys were crying, and I was like, what's wrong with you? And you know, I just, all this ego stuff in me, and insecurity, and fear, and worship was wild, and I was like, I've never seen this in my life before. My, our worship times in my DTS were insanity. They would often turn into total dance parties, like but awesome dance parties, like just worship was nuts. And I was sitting in the back and I'm like, these people are weird. They're overly emotional. Like I don't get these people, right? so the whole first week I was like, I think I'm gonna go home. I remember calling my parents being like, I'm not sure this place is for me. Long story short, on the Friday of the first week, I had a life-changing encounter with God's love. And for me, everything shifted in that moment. And I went in a short amount of time From thinking that all of my actions were an attempt to earn God's love, to a massive paradigm shift, to realizing that He loved me before I ever did anything for Him. And therefore, all of my actions were not for love, they were from love. And it changed everything for me. Because for all of my years of following Jesus, it was like I'll read the Bible because that'll show God that I love him. I'll try and like not, you know, fall into lust because that'll show God I love him. I'll try and not get you know angry at my parents because that'll show God I love him. And all my actions, I'll try and pray before I go to bed at night, was like to impress God, show him I loved him, and hopefully get him to go, you know what, you're doing a good job, I love you too. This encounter for me changed everything. I won't go into the whole thing, but it, the way God moved in my heart in the middle, back of this little classroom I was in on a Friday night in another worship moment where God finally apprehended my heart and got a hold of me and goes, nothing you could ever do will make me love you more. And nothing you could ever do will make me love you less. I loved you before you even knew I existed. I loved you in your mother's womb. I loved you before you ever did anything right or wrong. My love is unconditional. And I got up off the ground on that Friday night, not mature, still working on that, not free of every insecurity, lots of journey of walking through that, not free of every fear, but I got up convinced of God's love. Everything shifted for me. And my entire DTS, I was like a kid in a candy store, like running through DTS. And I was like, did you guys know that there's a something called the Holy Spirit? And a lot of my DTS guys, they're like high-fiving me. They're like, yeah, that's awesome, Andy. Great job. And I'm like, no, no. Did you know? Did you know that God speaks to us? You know, and I'm like this is crazy. And they're like, yeah, that's awesome, Andy. And they're like, isn't he cute? You know, he's so hungry for God. Like I, I, I just like, I was undone. It was like, I realized my whole life that I had been in Alaska. We have mud rooms. I don't know what you have, where you're from, but it's where you take your shoes off. Cause it's often muddy or snowy or whatever. It's a little room on the front of your house, the entryway. And I thought all of Christianity was the entryway. I'd been living for years going like, okay, I'm a Christian. This is awesome. The room's kind of small. It's a little bit boring. I got it memorized, but I'm a Christian. And I'm in the room, and God, this is cool. If this is all there is, I guess this is all there is. A little bit boring, but I'll never say that because that'd be terrible to say, right? I love the mud mudroom. It's a great mud room. I looked in that corner yesterday. I'm going to this corner today. Just two steps away. It's not hard. I love your house, God. Me and you dwelling in this house. Super good. Mud everywhere. Shoes everywhere. And I'm living in this thing, and all of a sudden for me in DTS, it was like the door flung open to the largest mansion ever built in human history. And I was like, are you kidding me? There's a kitchen in this house. (laughs) And then it was like for me walking down the hallway, opening a door, going, oh, my Lord, why didn't anyone tell me about this room? I had no idea this even existed. The Bible's not boring? And then walking down the next hallway and finding holiness isn't drudgery? What in the world have I been living? And I realized my whole life I'd been in this mudroom and there is this mansion of exploration that Jesus has invited us into that is called relationship, fellowship, devotion, and intimacy everything began. You haven't been, and some of those prayers may land in your heart even in these days that we're together, but I began to get consumed with a simple prayer. God, I want to know you as much as you can possibly be known. I'm not content to know you like my youth pastor knows you. I'm not content to know you like my parents know you. I'm not content to know you like I read about someone else knowing you. God, I want to know you as much as a human can know you without dying from knowledge of you. That I would be so near to you, so aware, so intimate, so close to you that I would know you as is possible to know you. I had lived so much of my life comparing myself to others Then looking at the standards set around me and going, I guess, well, that's all there is because that's what everybody else is doing. And all of a sudden, this hunger began to fill my heart. What's really possible in terms of walking with God? It was around this time that I had read about Enoch and man, this began to mess me up. Such a weird story, and I'm reading in Genesis, and it says that Enoch walked with God, and then he was no more, and I'm like, what does that mean? And I began to pray this simple prayer, God, I want to have an intimacy and a friendship and a devotion with you like Enoch had, and so I'm like, I'm going to study every passage in the Bible about Enoch, and there's like three in the whole Bible, and they're all weird. First one, he's walked with God, and that word walked in the Hebrew means habitual fellowship, It means he had an addiction to fellowship with God. It means that there were a lot of other things going on in life, but Enoch was walking with God in the midst of all of them. He was addicted like we might be to technology to fellowship with Jesus, with the Father the way that we might be addicted to entertainment or anything else, Enoch was drawn again and again into an intimate conversation with God. And it never ended. And then you read in Hebrews that it says that God took him to heaven without dying because of the faith in his heart that pleased God. And you realize, you read this, you go, literally, it's like, I don't know how it happened. I'm making this up. But did God be like, he gathered the angels. We know at times he looked down at his servant Job, you know, so he talked about him. Did he gather the angels and be like, guys, check it out. Check out Enoch. They're like, watch how he walks with me. And they're like, dang, that's epic. And then they, God goes, okay, we're gonna take a vote. He's pretty much already here in intimacy. Should we bring him up? He's pretty much already as near to me as you can be without breaking the threshold of heaven and earth. So should we take a vote and bring him up and break the rules? Because the rules are you die before you go into eternal life or eternal separation. He goes, should we break the rules for Enoch because he's actually almost here already. And they're like, let's vote. Majority wins, they're like, bring him up. And Enoch never dies. He's literally taken to heaven because he walked with God in such a place of faith that it pleased God. And he went, he's pretty much already here. Let's just bring him all the way. Same time, someone comes through this little base that I'm at and they, they give me a prophetic word. It was so encouraging. They're praying for me. At the end of the word, they go, I, I feel like God is saying he's calling you to Enoch intimacy. And I'm like, dang it. I knew it. It's just scenting this thing for me. And then at the same time, I find myself getting frustrated, why? because i was like god if you just said paul like intimacy i could have like read all the books about paul and all the books that paul wrote and i could have been like made the 10 points to walking with paul like intimacy if you just said like john like intimacy the beloved disciple then i could have come up with the five you know key things that john embraced that really allowed him to walk in deep intimacy why would you say enoch intimacy with three weird verses and no knowledge of his life other than he walked with God and he pleased him. Why Enoch? And I felt the Lord clearly spoke to me and said, that's the exact reason. Because if I said Paul, if I said John, if I said anyone else, you would turn it into a formula. And that's what the church has been doing for years and years. I didn't create you for formulas. I created you for relationship. And here's the reality. As long as you're still on earth, there's more. Because I brought Enoch up. And if you're still on earth, all you need to know is you can go deeper there's more for you, there's more revelation, there's more intimacy, there's deeper fellowship. You can get even closer, not theologically in the sense of his presence, we're as close as we'll ever be, but in terms of relationship, how many of you know 21, I celebrate my 21st wedding anniversary this month, how many of you know 21 years into marriage I'm much closer to my wife? A knowledge of intimacy, we we know each other's thoughts, we're 21 years of best friends. That there's an intimacy with Jesus that we can get closer in a relational sense. And the Enoch word for me was to provoke me that as long as I'm still on the earth, there must be more because I haven't been beamed up by God and the angels yet. And Enoch's a constant reminder to all of us that you can't turn it into a formula. It's an intimate relationship, but it's available to every one of us. How much do you want? Because you can have as much as you want. There's no limit. There's no ceiling on how deep you can go with God. And this prayer began to consume me. God, I want to know you as you can be known. For me, success was being read Much of what was crumbling before my eyes and what was beginning to develop inside of my heart was a success that was based much more on eternity, much more on relationship, and much more on the things that I actually had the power to shape. Because how many of you know our futures are beyond our ability to control? Something's happened Tomorrow that's totally out of our control. You can't make it happen, but this one thing no one can take from me, intimacy with Jesus. Put me in a prison, I'll go deeper. Put me in a difficult place, I'll go deeper. Throw me in the middle of tragedy, I'm gonna run into his presence. Crisis comes, fall more in love with him. Difficulty, unforeseen circumstances, it's the one thing your circumstances can't touch but actually could propel you deeper in is intimacy with Jesus and everything began to be shaped around this for me. And I remember, and you will have moments like this and have already, it's probably 19 early on in YWAM, and I began to picture someday I will actually see him face to face. It's like a real moment. There'll be a real moment in real history where we will see him face to face. And I began to dream about that moment. What would it be like? How would I feel? What will I say? What do I want to feel? What do I want to look back on in that moment? Because when that moment happens, all of this, what we know as humanity and life on earth is done as we know it. It'll, we'll never have this back again. And I'm going to dream about that moment. I thought to myself, in real reality, I knew that the first moment that I would see him would probably be a little bit of like, just for a nanosecond, like not even a full second, just a part of a second, would be like, Oh man, I wish I'd done more. I wish I'd run harder. I wish I'd been more hungry. I wish I had loved you more, right? For a nanosecond. But it can't survive even a full second because his love immediately melts that emotion. His kindness is so good. And I began to imagine that, you know, you have this picture of God on the throne and the angels and the four living strange creatures around him and all that's going on. And I knew that that in reality, when I first saw him, I would be on my way to the floor, to worship for probably i don't know 3 4 5000 years before you can get up again like one glimpse of the beauty of god one glimpse of what he's actually like one picture because the four living creatures are stuck on auto repeat holy 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 but how you know every time they say it it's new to them there's no drudgery in holy 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 for the angels and the living creatures because they're constantly growing in the revelation of what God's like. He's unexplorable. He's the highest mountain that could ever be climbed. He's deeper than the deepest valley. He's far greater than the ocean depth and the space, even though it's expanding all the time, can't even touch the greatness of his beauty. He made all that. How much more grand is he? So every time the angels say holy, it's new to them. And maybe he only had to turn his face a millimeter and they went, oh, holy. And then he turned his face a millimeter, holy! Because the revelation of his beauty, his glorious splendor. And I knew on my way to the ground for the first 5,000 years of worship, just at the at one look at his beauty, my life dream became this. That on the way to the floor, that I'd be able to look at him and say this simple sentence, I kinda knew that you were this glorious. I kinda knew you were this beautiful. I mean, I didn't really know, I'd have died if I'd have really known this, but I kinda knew. And I spent my 70, 80 years on this earth, diving into the depths of your glory, your beauty, intimate relationship, and though I didn't know it, on the way to the floor, I'd kinda be like, I kinda knew it. For the first 5,000 years of worship, pull myself off the floor, turns his face an inch, and we go down for 5,000 more years but my definition of life and success and why am i really here and what's the purpose and of course you guys know me enough to know it's the great commission is a significant part of that but how many of you know that the great commission is only as powerful as the great commandment is in our life and even my walking out of the Great Commission is circumstantial at times. You know, of course I can walk in simple obedience every day. I can love the person in front of me, but I can't control someone turning to Jesus. I can't make someone follow him. I can't make someone get healed. I can walk in obedience and all of that, but where does that all come from? There's something downriver or upriver. There's something, the headwaters of the Great Commission is always the great commandment. The lake that that flows from, the life source of a vibrant life in the Great Commission always flows from a proper priority of the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this season of my life, my early 18, 19, I got married when I was 20, but God laid this foundation in these several years to set the trajectory of my life. I have one goal, to know God as much as he can be known. And everything else will be a tributary of that one definition of success. Everything else will be downriver of that. Everything else will be an outworking of that. My relationship with my children, I'm only as good of a father as I am intimate with my father. I'm only as good of a husband as I am. I'm only in history in friendship, in authentic, intimate relationship. And uh, in all honesty... You know, this, this first several years of my life, this was the, the primary prayer, the trajectory. And then I look back now and I share this with you because hopefully at some moment in your life, you'll reflect on some of this and go, my gosh, he talked about this and I know what this is. And I found myself in my early 20s getting really busy. I found myself in my early 20s getting really distracted. I found myself out of insecurity wanting to redefine success according to how everyone else was defining success. I don't mean everyone else in my YWAM world, I mean society. And I found myself in the midst of that needing to try and prove something? Is my life worth living? Am I really measuring up to something? Is there real value? Am I making a real difference? And I found myself in a several year period where I wouldn't have known at the time until I looked back where I was drifting from that simple prayer, that simple definition of success, and life was getting a little more complicated complicated with complexities of leadership and pressure and decision-making and others looking to me and trying to figure out what do I do with my own insecurities and my own sense of inferiority. And it was like I was being tested in that simple prayer and tested in that lifelong pursuit of intimacy. And I had another defining moment. I probably was 22, 23 years old. And I was remembering the room I was sitting in. I was talking to the Lord. And uh, I, was, I, knew, I was on YWIM staff, and for this season, they had asked me to like, help lead the operational side of this base I was at. It wasn't here, it was in Maui. And we had this little, I don't know if I told you guys, Maui is like the natural food store of YWAM. You know, Kona's like, you know, I don't know, it's like the Hilton, you know what I mean? It's like, it's big, it's giant. We, you know, Maui's like Airbnb, like way out, kind of hippie Airbnb. And and we like had nothing. We had no money, no one had cars, like we hitchhiked everywhere. Nobody lived off camp, off base. We had a little base in the woods and the jungles kind of, and it was awesome. I loved everything about it. Barely ever wore shoes, just ran around in the jungles, had a ton of fun. But well, for me in the season, they asked me to oversee operations, which meant I had a roll of duct tape because every wall in our house was completely termite ridden. I woke up every morning in my DTS covered in termite dust, every morning. I had the luxury of being able to put my finger through the wall anywhere I wanted in my bunk room in DTS. It was awesome. And... Uh, And our vans were so broken down, I literally, I don't know how to fix a car. I'd never learned that. So I was just calling mechanics all the time. I'm two times while I was driving our campus vans, the hood latch broke, flipped up, and shattered the windshield while I was driving. Two times. One time while driving, the drive shaft that connects the two axles fell out while I was driving, but it fell out in the front, so I was like jousting the highway while it's still attached in the back. These were our vans, right? The, the one van I mostly drove didn't have a door latch that worked, so I bungee corded the door to the dash so that it would stay closed, right? So I'm having this conversation with God going, this is ridiculous. What a waste of time. This is not what I'm called to, God. Like, don't you know, like, I should be leading stuff. I'm like, I'm literally having this conversation. But I'm sort of drifting in a way from these early several years of foundation laying. And I remember talking to God about this, complaining, like, Lord, how long do I have to do this? Like, this is not what I'm called to. I'm not even good at it, God. Someone would be better at it than me. And I feel the Lord asks me a question. And you got to know when God asks you a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. It's because we don't know the answer. And he wants to teach us something. And he asks me this question. I feel I'm having a conversation. And it's one of those times where you're like, I don't think I'm making this up because I wouldn't make this up. And I feel the Lord asks me this question. Hey, if you were on an island by yourself for the rest of your life, and you were the only one there, nobody around you to disciple, no one around you to share the gospel with, No way to like really be fruitful or impactful according to your definition. Like it was just me and you on an island. Would it be enough for you to just have me? And I was like, dang, I know the answer to this question. The answer is no. But it was like all this stuff from these first several years was coming back to me and God calling me back to that place of my first love, calling me back to that place of the great commandment above the great commission, knowing that the great commission will only be fruitful if we really walk in the great commandment. It wasn't a lack of the great commission, it's the right priority. It's John chapter 15. If you wanna bear fruit, abide in the vine because God knew that we were prone to aiming for fruitfulness. So this is amazing. God goes, I get it. You're made in my image and you love creating. I love creating. He goes, but I'm gonna set up the economy of my kingdom so that you can't get what you will naturally want without me getting what I want. You're gonna want fruitfulness. I want intimacy. So I'm setting up the whole thing so you can only have fruitfulness when I get intimacy. And John 15 is this invitation to bear fruit. Why? Because you're abiding in the vine. And it's out of that abiding intimate relationship that fruit really occurs. So I'm all about the fruit and the impact, but you gotta know it's just us if it doesn't really come from abiding in the vine. And that's what God really wants. And part of it is he's rewiring our thinking so that that would be what we actually want above everything else else in life as well that we become a people who are longing to abide in him above everything else. And my belief and my testimony is that if we will abide in him, and when God, but I came out of an intimate abiding with Jesus, not because we had a great strategy on a whiteboard and finally figured it all out. It came out of that place of intimacy. Psalm 27, 4, familiar passage, but this is one that, I think we can never get too familiar with and I hope it doesn't become so familiar that it loses its power. And this is David just so you have a little bit of context most commentators think that David wrote this psalm and this makes it even more powerful. That David wrote this psalm if you remember the story of David's life there's a period where he's he's not a great dad. And Absalom, his son, rebels against him. Do you guys remember this story? And Absalom takes over David's kingdom, kicks him out, and David runs for his life. David leaves with just his faithful following, his mighty men, his army, and, uh, and Absalom takes over his kingdom, takes over his palace, takes over his gold, takes over his, his um, everything. So Absalom's now ruling. David flees for his life. And David looks back on Jerusalem, which is now under Absalom's rule, and he's lost everything. And that's when commentators think that he wrote Psalm 27. When you think about that, it makes it even more powerful. And you can hear it in what he's saying. So he prays and he declares, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When my enemies reach out or come after me to devour me, when the wicked come after me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. When an army besiege me, I will not be afraid. And if war breaks out against me, even then I will be confident. And then this famous verse, one thing I desire, one thing I ask for that I could dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon his beauty and to seek him in his temple. And you think about that. Put yourself in King David's shoes on the backside of Jerusalem, looking over at the city, everything that he's just lost. And in that moment, it would not even be wrong to pray and go, God, give me back the kingdom that you gave to me. Or God, give me back my son. Or God, give me back my power. Or, Father, would you restore this? He could have prayed any of those things, but he doesn't pray any of those things. He goes back to his early days before he was ever a king, when he was a shepherd boy with a little harp all by himself, and he writes singing over his sheep, realizing that as he is to his sheep, the Father is to him. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want Leads me beside still waters, green pastures, restores my soul. And David recognizes that he never signed up to be king. That was never his idea. That was God's idea. Samuel finds him back in the hills, taking care of sheep and anoints him and says, you're God's chosen. And David's sort of like, I'm a shepherd. He goes, yes, but God has seen your heart. Men weigh things on exterior appearance. God weighs things on the heart. And he found a boy on the back hills of Bethlehem that he knew whose heart was ready to be king over his people Israel. And David, now years later, having been the king, having the kingdom, looks back on that and goes, you know what? I never signed up to be king. I signed up for one thing, to dwell in your house forever. I'm not asking for my house back. I want your house. To gaze upon your beauty, I'm not asking to look at my gold and my army and my kingdom and all my followers and all my glory and all my splendor. He goes, there's a beauty greater than it all, and it's your beauty. To seek you in your temple. This is the one thing, all the things he could have asked for. David asked for this one thing, and here's what I thought when I read this. To my knowledge, David is the first person in the entire Bible to call God beautiful. Think about that for a moment. We're way into history too. This is all the way Genesis to Samuel. He's the first person I'm aware of that ever referred to God as beautiful, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. His circumstances don't make God sound beautiful. His circumstances are hard. His son has rebelled against him. He's lost his kingdom. He's on on the running for his life once again. Absalom wants to kill him. Uh, Jerusalem and seems like is now just going to follow Absalom and he's only got a faithful few people and he's a refugee running for his life now. In that circumstance, how many of us would say God is beautiful? Because so often our circumstances are painting our picture of his nature, his character, and what he's like instead of us painting our circumstances with what he's really like. And David paints beauty over tragedy. David paints the beauty of God over the difficulty of his circumstances. David sees differently than most people, and this is what struck me, and it still strikes me to this day. I have used the word beauty to refer to God. You have probably used it. It's part of my language with him. I pray this scripture regularly, daily. Here's my question. If David hadn't told me that God was beautiful, would I have discovered it on my own? Or do I only recognize God's beauty because David told me he was beautiful? God, I just want to know you as you can be known. I want to be someone that if I had never read Psalm 27, I would have written Psalm 27. That if no one else had ever told me you were beautiful, because to this point, I don't know that anyone had ever told David that God was beautiful. You don't find it as recorded in Scripture. So he found it himself in the secret place. What did David know and what did David experience? What did David feel in God's presence that he would use the word beauty to describe God? And when you read the Old Testament, you're like, man, there's some rough moments in there. There's some crazy judgment. There's a lot of people dying. Like there's a lot of difficult stuff happening in the Old Testament. You read David's own life. He made some major mistakes and he experienced the pain of that brokenness. How is it? That with all of those circumstances and all of those stories, David says beauty over God. What would it look like for a generation to paint beauty over their circumstances? More aware of the beauty of God than the difficulty of what might surround us. More aware of the beauty of God than the difficulty of some of our own stories. And David provokes us, invites us. How much of God can we know? How much... Of him can we have? And I'd say again, you can have as much as you want. How much of his beauty do you want to see? How much do you want to dive into the revelation of what he's really like? Another passage we'll hit here, Exodus chapter 33, going back a bit to one of other, one of God's other best friends in the scripture. And this is Exodus chapter 33. This is profound. This is Moses. And I don't know. I've never heard many people talk about this specific story. Parts of it, but not the part I want to bring you today. In Exodus 33, God has already led the children of Israel out of freedom, out of Egypt. Right. So they've left Egypt; they're free, but they've now wandering through the wilderness. But they're on their way to the Promised Land. And you got to know this land has been promised to them for over 400 years. So this is multiple generations growing up hearing about this land that God has promised and that they w- will be the inheritance of the people of Israel but they're in they're in slavery they're in captive to they're captive to Egypt so they've finally been set free by God's mighty power his mighty right arm they're now free and they're on their way to the promised land but this is a major crisis moment on the journey to their inheritance in Exodus 33 verse 2 because the Lord is like So on the edge of constantly having to judge Israel because of its sin, he says says here, I will give you, I'll give the land to your descendants. I will follow through on my promise. But verse two, I will send an angel before you and I'll drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, all those guys. But I will not go with you because you're a stiff necked people and I might destroy you on the way. Have you ever read that passage and thought this was a crazy moment? God is. And all of a sudden, the children of Israel. He's holding to his promise. Moses is leading them. Four hundred years they've been waiting for this moment, and God has a conversation with Moses and goes, "Hey, I will. I will pay due on my promise. I'm going to make sure you get the land." He goes, "But I'm going to send one of my angels to do the work because I'm not going with you." This is a crisis. This is a crazy moment in Israel's story that I never hear anyone talk about. He says, I can't go with you. I'm afraid if I do that I will constantly be having to judge you because of your rebellion and your sin, which requires and necessitates judgment. So he goes, because of that, I don't want to destroy you. So I'm going to send you with an angel and I'm staying here. This is odd. And then it's like you get a commercial break. Maybe even more odd in this story is all of a sudden you have this commercial And the commercial doesn't seem to fit in the rest of the story. Now Moses This tells us about how Moses met with God. Moses used to take a tent, pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And when Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshiped each at the entrance to their own tent. And here's the key verse. And the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks with a friend. Let that sentence just provoke you. What is possible in face to face friendship with God? Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Then it goes right back to the story. So this is interesting. But I think Moses is making a point. Remember, Moses wrote the book of Exodus. So he's writing this about his own experience with God. Are you guys still good with me today? Are you guys with me? Are you tracking? Okay, this, get, let this scripture land in your heart. This will mess you up. My prayer is you get a little messed up today, like ruined, messed up by the beauty of God and the invitation to a lifelong, ever-deepening, intimate walk with him. But he says, here's the story. I can't go with you. I'm sending an angel. Commercial break. Hey, when Moses, and Moses writing this, hey, just some doubt. I spoke to God as men speak to each other as friends. That's how we talked. And then it goes back to the story, which I think we needed that commercial to understand why Moses was able to do what he does after this. Moses says to the Lord, now Moses is in the conversation. We're back to the real story. He says, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me, right? The angel or him. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. I love that sentence. And then the Lord replies, Okay, I'm adding, okay, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. What? How did this happen? And then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, don't send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked. Because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Come on, guys. Come on. Come on. Let this story wreck you. Okay. Okay. Children of Israel, super rebellious, super. They're always falling into sin. They're never trusting God. They want to go back to Egypt. So God looks at them and goes, I will fulfill my promise because I'm a promise keeping God. I made a covenant and I will fulfill it. You're going to have the land. He goes, but I'm afraid I'll destroy you on the way. So I'm sending an angel. Then this little commercial break, Moses makes sure we know, hey, just so you know, I was friends with God. I could talk to him like this. Very next, back to the story again. Moses goes, hey, if you don't go with us, then don't send us. And in a moment, God goes, okay, I'll go with you and I will give you rest. What? What kind of friendship moves the heart of God in one conversation? To go from, I can't go with you, I'm sending an angel, to like, uncle, I'm going. You convinced me because you found favor and I'm pleased with you. And you realize this whole time that the children of Israel thought that the promised land was their inheritance. But Moses knew that God was his inheritance. And he goes, if you send us up to the land, I didn't sign up for land. These are your people, not my people. I signed up for you. And if you don't go, I'm not going. I didn't sign up for a physical promise. I didn't sign up to just have a nice life in the promised land. I didn't sign up for just big grapes and fruitful harvests. I signed up for face-to-face friendship with you. And if you're staying here, then I'm staying here. You are my inheritance. Success, friends, is face-to-face friendship with the living God. How much do you want? Because he's not putting any limits on you. There's no ceiling on this intimacy. There's no ceiling on the revelation of his beauty. You can have as much as you want. And then you've got to love this. Have you ever been like massively blessed with a gift and it was so generous you almost were embarrassed by it? Like, it, maybe it was like someone gave you a massive amount of money from DTS, and I don't know why we do this, it's the human condition, but you know what I'm talking about, when you're like, oh, you didn't have to do that, but inside you're like, I'm so glad you did that, <laughs> right? Right? Right, have you ever been given that? Like someone just paid for something, they took you out to a nice place and you're like almost apologetic. Like, oh, you didn't have to do that. This is so kind. And you like almost overdo it. Like, wow, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And they're like, stop saying thank you. you know. But we overdo it out of like a little bit of insecurity around the generousness of the gift. So here's what's wild to me is God goes, I'm not going to the promised land. Moses goes, well, if you don't go, I don't go. I didn't sign up for land, I signed up for you. And God goes, okay, I'm going. And then Moses is like, good, I'm glad we settled that because I actually have another question I wanted to ask you. Instead of being like, oh, thank you, 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 thank you. Like, right, instead of being like, oh, you didn't have to, but I'm so glad you are, but you didn't have to, but thank you for coming with us. He goes, I'm glad we settled that because I have a much bigger question on my heart right now. And I'm going to ask that. The Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, good, now show me your glory. Come on. He goes, okay, glad you gave me the Mercedes Benz, but I'll take a Tesla too. He goes, okay, I'm glad that we've settled, that your presence will actually lead us in the promised land, but I'm not even just content with your leadership and your presence. I want to see your glory. I want to see as much of you as a human can see without dying from seeing. And God goes, this is so crazy. God literally goes from like, I'm not going with you to like, okay, I'm going with you to now God's going to break the rules. God set the rules and he's about to break his own rules. He just spent the last 10 chapters telling them how they can relate to him. He goes, hey, if you want to have a relationship with me, then kill a cow on the day of atonement. You need to set the priests apart, make sure they have pomegranates on the tassels of their robes and they've got a bell and they've ditched me. This is the old covenant, And then this is so amazing. Moses goes, hey, I know you just gave us all those laws. I I don't want to do any of those. And Moses reaches into new covenant revelation in the old covenant. He goes, hey, I'm not waiting for a priest. I'm not waiting for the day of atonement. I don't have a goat right now or a cow. Show me your glory. I want to see everything I can see. And God breaks his own rules. And he says, not only am I going with you, then the Lord said, okay, I will cause all of my goodness to pass in front of you. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. He said, but you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, but I have an idea. There is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. And he literally goes, Because you asked, I'll show you everything I can show you without killing you. (laughs) Friends, in one conversation, I'm not going with you. Next moment, I'm going with you. Next moment, I'll show you everything I can show you without killing you. How? How? Face to face friendship with God. The commercial is everything to understanding the story. Moses goes, just so you know why I could ask this, we talked as friends. Just so you know for all of history why I could be so audacious, we were intimate friends. We were best friends. And you can be this audacious with your best friend. And God literally does. Sets him up on a rock. He covers him with his hand. As soon as his face, this is God. As soon as his face passes by, he pulls his hand off. And Moses has seen the glory of God on the earth. Everything he could see without dying from seeing him. Why? Face-to-face friendship. How much do you want? because you can have as much as you want. How did David and Moses tap into this kind of intimacy without the indwelling Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit could come on people in the Old Testament and anoint them for power, for knowledge, for revelation, but not until the new covenant could the Holy Spirit come and live inside of someone. You know what they had their reference, like David or Moses' reference for the Bible, and intimacy was like Leviticus. It was like, "Hey, if you have a skin condition, go outside the camp and then purify yourself for seven days." That's their revelation from the word. Ours is Ephesians. Philippians. If they could tap into this kind of intimacy in the Old Covenant, how much more, friends? Come on. How much more? You wake up in the morning and God lives inside of you. You don't just have to hide in the cleft of the rock. He is living inside of you. You don't have to go somewhere to find him. He's in you through the power of the Holy Spirit. How much more intimacy available in the new covenant than these great heroes had in the old covenant? How much do you want? To the New Testament, a couple passages and we'll wrap up. We'll pray, have to pray. Luke chapter 10. You've heard this story and maybe have even had real guilt at this story. I think for years I heard people teach this and thought, gosh, I am just Martha. I will just be Martha the rest of my life. Mary and Martha, the classic story. Verse 38 of Luke 10, Jesus said to his disciples, Jesus and his disciples were on their way. He came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked him, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. I remember hearing this for years and people teach on it and I'm like, gosh, because I'm a doer. I just love doing things. I love doing things for God. I like doing things for other people like I'm, I'm driven in that sense. And I'd be like, I guess I'm just always gonna be a Martha and I guess God just not pleases me with me as much as others. And th- I heard a wrong interpretation or teaching of the scripture. In reality, what Jesus, the scenario that's playing out is Jesus is in their home. Martha is preparing food. And let's be honest, everyone's glad Martha's preparing food. Jesus himself is gonna wanna eat lunch. Everybody's gonna wanna eat. Martha's issue was not preparing food. It says here that, that Mary was at his feet listening to what he said, but Martha was distracted by her preparations. The issue wasn't preparations. The issue wasn't working. The issue was that work had caused distraction from what was most important. And this word is fascinating in the Greek. And the word here, distracted, means this. I love this. It means to be physically in the room, but emotionally outside the room. It's to be physically present and emotionally disconnected. Martha's issue wasn't serving. Marcia's issue was that her serving had disconnected her emotions from what mattered most loving Jesus. So it wasn't that Mary was great because she was sitting at his feet, and Martha's just a perpetual loser because she's making lunch. The issue was that Martha serving had separated her emotions from loving Jesus. So when Jesus looks at her and out of her frustration, he doesn't say, Martha, Martha, you're working when you should have been at my feet. Martha, Martha, you were making lunch when I was teaching and you should have been sitting here listening. Guys, New Testament homes were tiny. She could hear every word he was saying. The issue was not hearing his words. The issue wasn't whether she could hear all the great teachings. The issue was that in her serving, she had disconnected her heart from Jesus. And so he speaks right to her heart, not to her actions. He says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. You have anxiety and duplicity in your heart. You have frustration and angst inside of you. He doesn't say, Martha, Martha, you were serving too much. He says, you are worried and you are upset. But few things are needed, indeed, only one. What was the one? Not just sitting at Jesus' feet every single day of our lives, emotionally being connected to his heart. It wasn't that the rest of our lives were called to sit 10 hours a day in prayer. That's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is in our serving, don't disconnect your emotions. And I love that Jesus said, in fact, only one thing. And I have to wonder, because David would have had, or Jesus would have had all 150 Psalms memorized. He would have prayed it. This was the prayer book of every young Jewish boy was the Psalms. So Jesus, you got to know, and I love this. When you read the Psalms, please get this for a moment. It'll totally change the way you view the Psalms. When you read the Gospels, you're reading about Jesus, and it's powerful. You're like, it's the story of him. It's what he said. It's how he moved. But when you read the Psalms, you are praying the exact sentences that Jesus prayed to the Father while he was on earth. You're being invited into Jesus's prayer life when you read the Psalms. The exact sentences of the Psalms were the intimate fellowship between God the Son and God the Father for 33 years on the earth. You're being brought into his secret place devotional life. Every time you read the Psalms, you are reading something that Jesus said to the Father on the mountainside early in the morning. It was his prayer book. And I have to wonder, was was Jesus referring back to David when he said, no, only a few things, in fact, not just a few, but one thing is needed to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of your life, to gaze upon his beauty and to seek him in his temple. He says, what Mary has chosen will not be taken away from her. This is an invitation to all of us to be both great commission minded, but not allow our passion for the great commission to cause our emotions to disconnect from intimacy with him. It's possible, friends, to live your whole life. I want to break a stereotype right now. My my testimony is like, if I look back at my last 20 years or so of following Jesus, it's not a testimony of having like really great gift sets. It's not a testimony of having like a really great, perfect leadership personality. It's not a testimony of having like all the great you know, tests, I've never even taken one. I don't know my DISC test, I don't know my Enneagram, I don't know any of them. It's not a testimony of being super qualified for anything. That's not anything to do with my testimony. I'm from a tiny little town in remote Alaska. My greatest fear in all of life was public speaking. I never thought I'd lead anything in my entire life. My testimony is this, are you ready for this? It is possible to never lose your zeal for Jesus. It is possible to never have a season where you plateaued in your love for God. That's my testimony. My testimony is it is possible to go your whole life and never have to look back and go, man, I coasted for 10 years. You never have to do that. It is possible to never lack zeal for Jesus. It is possible to never stop growing in intimacy. My only testimony is that I feel that I have never lost the hunger of that encounter when I was 18 years old. I feel I have never lost the pursuit of the love of God from that encounter when I was 18 year old. That's the grace of God and the testimony over my life. And I wanna break the stereotype that says I'm gonna have two years good with God and then I'm gonna have five years where I build my testimony and then I'm gonna come back to God and have a testimony Or you know the stereotype out there that it's going to be wild and I'm going to be hungry when I'm young and when I'm single, but when I get married and I have to get responsible and have children and have a career and a job, then I obviously can't be this zealous for God. Bogus, wrong, lies, enemy. Come on, think about this. Like you're single, you're young, and you're on fire. You marry someone who was single, young, and on fire. Have you ever added two fires and watched them become a smaller fire? Have you ever been like on fire, full of faith? On fire, full of faith. Settled down, cautious, safe. Please, friends, this is illogical. like saved, as if you should be more excited about him when you know nothing about him, and then the more you know about him, the less excited you get about him. That's not my story. My story is there's another room in the mansion. And I am searching it out. My story is there's another floor on this mansion and I can't wait to get to it. My story is that I tasted and seen that the Lord is good and every taste makes me hungry for another bite. My story is there never has to be a limit to your relationship with Jesus. There never has to be an end. David, why don't you jump up on the keys? We're gonna move into prayer in a moment. I wanna take you to one final passage. Matthew chapter 26. It's the final grenade I want to throw in your life tonight, today. Matthew 26. It's near the end of Jesus' life. In fact, he's on his way to the Last Supper. And in some ways, I feel it is intentional that all the gospel writers that account this story is directly followed by the story of the Last Supper and Judas betraying Jesus. So in some ways, these stories are a story of two tables. And I think this is an invitation to the first table. It says, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money could have been given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial." truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. It's the only story in the entirety of the New Testament says that it will go everywhere the gospel goes. That this story, what she has done, will go everywhere around the world that the gospel has gone is this story. And I want you to think about this, is that most commentaries say, this is Mary of Bethany. And we know Mary Bethany is also the son, one who's sitting at his feet when Martha is serving and detached from him. And now he's come back to visit Mary and, and Martha and their brother Lazarus. And he's at the table, he's reclining, and she comes with this bottle of expensive perfume. To put this in context, though, this wasn't like she ran down to the store and bought an expensive bottle of perfume. In fact, we know it's the same as a year's wages. So let's just say maybe in the average American household, I don't know, maybe... Average income is 50000 40000 something like that. So it's an average annual income for a family. For us today, that would literally be like a forty dollars to $50,000 bottle of perfume. Now, she didn't just go find that. So you have to ask the question, where did she get it? Well, most commentaries would say that it was her marriage dowry. That in that time, you were given a gift as a daughter from your dad that was the gift that would go to the groom that was like an added value. It was like when you marry this woman, you're not only having this woman, but there's a gift that comes with this woman that actually allows you to get started as a family. It's, it's, it's extravagant. It's, a, it's part of the way the father would invest in the next generation. So she has this marriage dowry. This is the gift that adds value to her future husband. This is what makes her more valuable to Mary someday in her culture. And I'm not saying that as a negative, that's their culture. And in this moment, Jesus is about to die and the disciples still don't really even believe it. In fact, they're all about to abandon him, all of them. John's the only one standing at the cross of the 12 disciples at the end. But even he runs away from Jesus in the garden. Peter's going to deny that he even knows Jesus. And in this moment, the only one that seems to have any sense of what's about to happen is Mary. And she comes and she wastes her future in a moment of extravagant love. Come on. She takes her future, she takes her future value, she takes her future marriage, she takes societally what gives her value, she takes it all and in a moment she breaks it on the feet of Jesus recognizing she will never have this moment again with him. This is her last moment with the one who set her free. The disciples, the holy club, the good guys, like the guys they've been walking with him for three and a half years. They look on at this and they go, what a waste. We could have sold that. Think of all the people we could have fed. Think of all the good we could have done. And Jesus looks to them and goes, you have missed the moment. She's the only one that realizes what's about to happen. I'm literally about to die for the sins of the world, and she has anointed me for my death. And they're indignant. It says, "How could she waste this? How could she spend all of this in this one moment gone? Her future up in flames. What? Who's going to marry her now? Where does her future success now? What about her?" On his feet, shatters it, washes his feet. And then Jesus says, just so you know, this story will go everywhere that the gospel goes because it's a story of extravagant love. And you've got to know when Jesus hung on that cross, there was one thing he could smell and it was Mary's extravagant love. When he hung on the cross, taking the sins of the world, there was one glimmer of hope as his disciples abandoned him. Peter wouldn't even admit that he knew him. And it was the aroma of a woman who wasted it all for him. It was the aroma of intimate devotion. It was the aroma of real success. And can you imagine for Jesus as he hung on that cross and the pain of the crucifixion, what kind of hope it gave him when another waft of that perfume hit his nostrils. And he thought, there is one that loves me. And many more will follow in her footsteps. She prepared me for this moment. And the intimacy of that aroma of her sacrifice fueling the strength that he had to exert on the cross, I can't imagine. And I began to dream about for my own life and a whole generation, my children, what would it look like if a whole generation began to define success as breaking are bottles of extravagant love at his feet again and again and again. Crisis hits, what do we do? We run to his feet and we break another bottle.
1: Confusion,
0: tragedy, didn't see this coming, difficult, I don't understand it, what do we do? Not deconstruct, we run to his feet, break another bottle. The most victorious moments of our lives, we couldn't believe it, the breakthrough came, what do we do? Run to his feet break another bottle that through the ups the downs the success the difficulties the hardships and everything in between what do we do a generation that would never lose sight of true success to know him as he can be known to walk in intimacy to truly make the first commandment first priority above everything else in life I want to give us an opportunity to respond today. And I just feel like in moments like this, all we really need is just a moment that you can have with God where you can put a stake in the ground and go, God, this is it for me. I want to know you. And I think about how many stories I've heard of people that have had a great two years with God and my heart breaks. My heart breaks because it's not about two good years with God. I meet people that I've watched have tremendous encounters in this Ohana court three, four, five years later, cynical, frustrated, bitter. Gosh, this was not the dream. This was not it. Where did we lose our way? Was the commitment not there? Was the, Were the priorities mixed up? Did insecurity get in the way? Did inferiority get in the way? Did crisis come and confusion hit? What caused people to get derailed? And my prayer today is that we could put a stake in the ground in whatever way you need to, to go, God, from this day forward, I am defining success as an intimate relationship with you. And no one can take this from me. God, from this day forward, find me like Mary, breaking my bottle of extravagant love at your feet again and again and again. I'm not letting distraction steal this love. I'm not letting another affection steal this love. I'm not letting some guy out there, or some girl out there steal this love. I'm only going to even marry someone who believes in this love and wants to carry the same fire. I'm not gonna let insecurity cause me to strive for a success that Jesus hasn't invited me into. I'm not gonna define my success according to the world's metrics. God, I want you. You are my inheritance from this day forward. It won't be how much money's in my bank when I die. It won't be even the number of people I impacted when I die. It will be the depth of my love for God when I die that will define my success. So I just want to give you an opportunity. If you want to come to the front, if you want to kneel right in front of your chair, if you want to stand, if you want to do anything, but we're just going to pray for a moment. And I just feel like a whole bunch of people would have a profound moment with God right now over your future. Over the high calling of intimacy with Jesus. making a commitment today to one thing, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon his beauty, to seek him in his temple. Holy Spirit, I pray you just move through this room right now. I pray for a Holy Spirit resolve to be released today. Father, I pray for a deep commitment, not from striving, but from grace, from love. A lifelong commitment to live. Father, I pray today, make us a people like Mary, who even in the busyness of life, even raising a bunch of kids someday, even the leadership responsibilities that we'll carry, that none of it will cause us to detach our hearts and our emotions from simply loving you. Father, I'm asking for many in this room today that life would become a little more simple today, that where complexity has stolen your joy, that simplicity would restore your joy. Father, the pressure of future decisions, college, university, career, family, who am I going to marry? Where am I going to live? Father, I pray, strip away the complexities. Make it simple again today. Your presence, your power, your love. Father, I pray where there's been distraction that has competed for our affections, I ask today, Lord, renew our affections for you. More than body image, more than what others think, more than reputation, more than looks. Father, we'd be more aware of your love than anything else in life. God, I ask, restore our affections where they've gone a little sideways. Put our affections on you and you alone today, God. Lord, I'm asking with this simplicity would come a renewed joy of the Lord to wake up in the morning and know we don't have to have it all figured out. We just need to walk with the Father. That we don't have to see the promised land. We just need to see the promised giver. Father, I pray today that you would establish a home in each person's life. A home that can endure difficulty. And when those around us begin to doubt, begin to deconstruct, begin to walk away, begin to become passive, Lord, we would find us. Find us in intimacy. Find us in this home. Find us dwelling in your presence, God. if everyone around us, close to us, were to turn away, God, find us faithful. Find us loving you. And Lord, I'm asking for fortitude today. I'm asking for the gift of perseverance. I'm asking 20 years from now, we'd be more in love with you, Jesus. Father, I'm asking every marriage and future marriage would only cause more love, more faith, more intimacy, God. Father, I'm praying that out of this room would be Hundreds of children that would grow up in intimacy, grow up prioritizing the secret place, your love, dwelling in your shelter, gazing on your beauty. And Father, I'm asking right now for every person in here, would you open our eyes, God? We want to see you like we've never seen you before. Lord, open our ears. We want to hear your voice like we've never heard it before. God, open our minds. We want to know you like we've never known you before. Lord, open our emotions. We want to feel you like we've never felt you before. God, I'm asking, open up the heavens over every life in this Ohana court today to hunger, to thirst, but to feed and to taste and to encounter and to experience, Lord, to see your beauty and only want to see more of your beauty to taste your goodness and only hunger for more of it, God. God, give us the gift of hunger. Give us the gift of pressing in. Give us the gift of lingering in your presence. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Asking for a stake in the the ground moment. Five years from now, when we get tested, we'd remember this time in the Ohana court. On our knees, on our faces, your presence so near. Lord, and we'd come running back to home. Set our eyes back on your beauty. we'd break another bottle of expensive perfume. God, what a privilege to waste our life. Let extravagance be released in this room, even those that have wrestled with extravagance in worship or extravagance in prayer, extravagance in giving, extravagance in the secret place. Lord, I ask today, That you would break the glass ceiling that you'd remove every hindrance let extravagance be released god let extravagance be released like david walked in like moses walked in but lord in the new covenant even how much more can we walk in i ask release that extravagance